How effective are current anticoagulation therapies for VTE management in patients without cancer? In this episode of Critical Conversations on Venous Thromboembolism, a master class series on DVT and PE, Drs. Cohen and Dottelzweig examine evidence-based recommendations for VTE management in patients without cancer and discuss the duration of anticoagulation therapy for these individuals. Access the full series and complete the post-test for credit at peerview.com forward slash HBR 860. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 3, Anticoagulation, When to Use It, With What, and For How Long. So to guide our discussion on the treatment of non-cancer-related VTE, let's have a look at another case. This is a 55-year-old man with a history of chronic kidney disease who developed painful swelling of his right leg. He's slightly hypertensive, his heart rate is 91, but his EGFR is 43 mils per minute, which means he's got a form of moderate renal impairment. He's receiving a statin, a beta blocker, an ARB and low-dose aspirin, and the ultrasound reveals a proximal DVT extending to the femoral vein. What are the choices we have for this man, Steve? Yeah, so I like to go back to what we've uh, seen most recently in 2021. It was the second update from the uh, uh, from, from the guidelines that were originally put forward, and they do stay and they adhere to following the patient chronologically. So that means an initiation, which it goes from a time period of five to 21 days. Then it goes to primary treatment for the three to six month phase and then extended or secondary prevention. And to start, uh, it's worth noting that whether you're looking for an oral lead-in that could be with either rivaroxaban or apixaban, always BID on the initiation period of time. And rivaroxaban is 15 milligrams BID for 21 days. Folks need to be mindful that it has to be with a meal. You need to take it with a meal to have good bioavailability, whereby um, with a Pixaban, that's 10 milligrams twice a day for seven days, independent of, of any uh, meal. And then there's always options of parenteral lead-in, which could be with an enoxaparin or a, an unfractionated heparin type of moiety. And then we transition to some primary treatment options. When do you use oral lead-in for your initial uh, BT treatment? I use it actually for the majority of my patients, Steve. There are some patients I give parenteral therapy for, uh, say patients with uh, intermediate or high-risk PE. I might give some parenteral therapy for a day or two. But the majority of patients I start on oral therapy and uh, continue it throughout. And it seems uh, to be very effective as we saw in the clinical trials. What about you, Steve? Something similar? Yeah, very similar. And the only time I'm these days using parenteral is uh, if I'm having someone who uh, had bariatric type surgery and I have a concern or another patient, I'm concerned about their GI absorption. Or if I think they might have a plight that um, might require catheter-directed thrombolysis or some other intervention, then I may, I'll use a parenteral there. But really, it's really the small minority, almost always oral these days. Yeah, very much the same. And what do you think determines the dose and duration of the anticoagulant therapy in these initial phases anyway? 
Yeah, in, in, in the initial phases, most of these folks, I'm giving the, um, the, the therapeutic dosing. I'm not going to be thinking about making the dose adjustment deep down unless it's a very unique um, uh, circumstance. And so I'm going to replicate the clinical trials. And so when we're, whether you're looking at Einstein with a Rivaroxaban or, or um, uh, uh, Amplify with a Pixaban, in that regard, I'll tend to go to six months uh, even though the range, as you saw, was three to six months, I tend to go longer unless there's a particular concern on the bleeding aspect. What about uh, changing the dose or changing the drug for EGFR? In my, my view, we don't change it very much. And one other point I would mention is that many um, primary care and other think about the, the age, body weight, and creatinine, you have two to three for atrial fibrillation dose adjustment for epixaban. That is not the case with VTE. We do not have a renal dosing adjustment is what I would offer. So what if Michael had, uh, say, a history of DVT? So he's now got a recurrent, unprovoked VTE, and now he's got a history of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, He's on some disease-modifying agent, methotrexate, but he's still on all the other treatments that we've been talking about. How would that uh, change our approach, Steve? Uh, what modifiable risk factors for bleeding can be identified? Could you just list some of them for me? Yes, for me, I would always um, reflect on and relook at the medication list and whether someone's on an antiplatelet here, um, aspirin, or perhaps the person's on an NSAID. This, is, this would be the time to really think about removing because those are notable risk factors on the hemorrhagic side, the bleeding side. And we'll, well, we'll look at the Hasbled in that regard now, even on the, on the venous side, not just on the arterial side. And, I, and as far as, um, you know, what, what, uh, an, which anticoagulation strategy has the lowest risk of bleeding? We touched upon that. Do you have any additional thoughts around that, Andrew? I think it's very clear that the, the DOACs have a reduced risk of bleeding compared to vitamin K antagonists. And I think we saw excellent results with a Pixaban with a 69% reduction in bleeding and about a 40% reduction with Rivaroxaban in the two studies. Uh, also, some reductions uh, were seen with Adoxaban and Dabigatran. So I think it's the DOACs the answer. Um, and I think that this patient... Uh, has now ongoing risk factors. So we have to choose uh, something that perhaps we could potentially alter the dose depending on the the disease state. So when someone has something like rheumatoid arthritis, that makes me want to continue the therapy a bit longer because it's ongoing risk. But rheumatoid arthritis sometimes flares up and you need like probably a bit more anticoagulant and sometimes it's quiescent. And in that situation, I think apixaban and rivaroxaban are useful because you can alter the intensity of the anticoagulation. Yeah, I think those are excellent points, Andrew. And, 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 and as you highlight, this is a very dynamic condition. Many of these are. And here being an extreme inflammatory condition potentially, and that puts folks at, at very high risk. So that may be a time where even if you are contemplating a reduction not so much on a duration, but a reduction, this may be a time that you choose not to do that. Yeah, and you've mentioned adjusting the medications already, but do you think 
you might add something in. I mean, if you're worried about them having GI bleeding, would you add in a PPI inhibitor? You know, someone with rheumatoid arthritis who's got some drugs that might affect the integrity of the GI tract. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's something that needs additional study um, uh, for sure uh, to pick it up. So I wouldn't say uh, you, uniformly we would do that for all these patients, but it's worth thinking through it. How about your approach? Yeah, yeah, certainly treat indigestion anyway, but as you say, not 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 routinely. So, if we come to the extent of therapy, um, we know from the the uh, chest and ash guidelines that the duration of therapy uh, is recommended for first provoked VTE, say someone with a transient factor that goes away, just three months or three to six months. But for an unprovoked VTE, we think about extending treatment and same for recurrences and cancer. So there are lots of patients that we're extending therapy. Are you using more long-term or extended anticoagulation in your patients, Stu? We are. I've been delighted to see the different guidelines uh, come together and be aligned. That wasn't always the case. So so, so that is absolutely uh, our trend. And most of the folks... um, uh, you know, uh, we might make some dose adjustments, not all. And maybe we should talk about some of the people that will keep on a higher dose. Uh, but uh, how about how about you? How, what's your some of your... Um... Yeah, well, I mean, I think we've got standard doses for um, many of the anticoagulants. We can't adjust them, particularly vitamin K antagonists and dobigatran and, and adoxaban. They're fixed doses. But for rivaroxaban, we can drop from 20 down to 10 milligrams and from... Pixaban, we can drop from 5 down to 2.5 BID. And I find that very useful because I think if a patient has got an ongoing persistent risk factor, maybe obesity or chronic renal impairment or immobility, then I like to drop them down but keep them protected. But I think if someone's got a history of many recurrences or there's neoplasia that's active and things like that, and we'll talk about cancer later, I like to keep them on the higher dose. So it's just, a, you know, no rhyme or reason, just uh, just a bit of, I hope, common sense, I hope, anyway. No, I agree with you. And I, I only, there's some select populations that I'll keep them on a higher dose extended, and you alluded to some of them, probably just to add on, probably an, an antiphospholipid antibody syndrome patient, or maybe someone who has a particularly high thrombo inheritory uh, hereditary uh, thrombophilic state, but maybe plus or minus on those. Yeah, and I, I do treat the triple positives, uh, antiphospholipids with vitamin K antagonists, but many of the double positive and single positives I manage, seem to manage very well on the DOAX. Okay. Agreed. Well, let's change Michael again, and now he's got a PE rather than a DVT. So he's got chest pain and his CTPA shows a left upper lobe artery PE and it extends from the lobar artery into the subsegmental branches. So a, a decent sized PE. Um, so would that change things? Do you think it would change our management if he had this uh, PE? Would, 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 would my recommendations change? I don't, I don't think they would. I don't know about you, Steve, but I think if there's no signs of high-risk PE and the patient's 
got an intermediate risk or low risk PE, I think I'd still ultimately manage them uh, either initially or after a day or two of parenteral therapy with a DOAC therapy. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I, I concur. I don't see high, um, high risk, you know, blood pressure is okay here. I don't know his RV. I probably would get an echo for get some additional inputs to, to help to help the guidance. But at this, uh, from as presented here, I would state a course as, as suggested. Yeah, assuming that there's no right ventricular dysfunction or no evidence of uh, cardiac enzyme elevation. Try and wrap this section up. We've, we've covered some of the strategies for selecting and initiating anticoagulation treatment, and we've discussed briefly where you extend the therapy. And in our next episode, we're going to turn to really giving some attention to patient-centered care, how to discuss the benefits and limitations uh, with your patients. So I look forward to that, Steve. Same here, Andrew. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Download the slides and practice aids for this episode and others at peerview.com forward slash HBR 860. Be sure to listen to all eight episodes in this masterclass series and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HBR 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance.